the print is perfect for examining it because it has that sort of relationship between being at once unique and part of a whole. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf, and I release weekly episodes with people in the print world who share our love of printmaking. So if you like what we do, you can join us over on Patreon to receive bonus content, or just tell a fellow print friend about the podcast so they can enjoy it too. Once again, thank you to every print friend who shared and supported our goal of raising funds for transcripts for our first 100 episodes. We did it. Be on the lookout for those appearing this week on helloprintfriend.com. Speaking of that Patreon page, that is where supporters can join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and it really helps us to keep bringing you printmaking content every week. You also get thank yous like exclusive merch and access to our bonus content, Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests about materials, processes, business advice, and just general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes and hear Tim's chat with today's guest. If you want to save a little cash and still support the show, you can now sign up for yearly subscriptions and save 15% off the tier price. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. Products like their line of professional screen printing tools. Speedball believes that professional-grade quality doesn't have to ruin your budget. Their aluminum squeegees, scoop coaters, and high-mesh count screens are perfectly suited to outfit your workspace without changing your books from black to red. So, if you want to upgrade your space from hobbyist to pro, head on over to Speedball's website to see where you can pick up your new favorite setup. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Ben Rack, our print friend from Down Under and a PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. We'll talk about coming to printmaking through photography, why you should just stop worrying about whether or not you're an artist and just be one, commercial print practices, collaboration, impressions management, and the performance of print. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to examine the masks you wear with Ben Rack. Hi Ben, how's it going? Good, Miranda. I'm uh, doing pretty well. How are things uh, treating you in Thailand? They're good. They're good. A little bit of a lockdown right now, but that's, you know... That's life right now, I think. So hard to really complain at this point. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm really excited to talk to you because you were one of really my first print friends, I think, because uh, I met you at San Francisco SGCI when I was pretty fresh out of graduate school and had only been working at Davidson Galleries, I think at that point for maybe only a handful of months, really, before I ended up going to uh, that conference. And I remember that I, I, I met you and Mike and Jason kind of all there, and Kong, of course, who's also been on the podcast. And so, I don't know, it's just, it's just wonderful that we live and work in a art community where I can talk to you again and get updates on what you're working on. I don't know, like six odd years later or something, and that we get to stay in touch. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember that when we met. We were we were on one of the we went to one of the events of the conference that was outside of the downtown area, and uh-huh. we were we were waiting for a bus to take us back so that we could do the the Crown Point press tour. And there was some sort of a stuff up with the buses, and then we were all sitting around there, and we bumped into you and and just started a conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. It's just so. Um... I mean, as I always said, printmakers are the best. So, yeah. <laughs> but so for people who maybe haven't known you and your work for the last six years, would you please let people know who you are, where you are, and what you do? All right. Um, so my name is Ben Rack. I'm a printmaker that's based in Sydney, Australia. I was born in the United States. I grew up in Israel until the age of 21, at which point I migrated to Australia and started um, started practicing art or studying art, doing my undergraduate um, degree um, in Sydney. And um, that's basically my personal history. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as uh, what I do is I practice mostly using silkscreen techniques, but I have been I've done projects across media, so I do also installation work. I've worked a bit with ceramics. I've worked a bit with glass. I've done some video work. I work with photo media. Um, but all in all, my interests and my passions lie um, in printmaking. And, and I'm also uh, an educator at the University of New South Wales. I've been um, lecturing there casually since about 2012. Mostly, mostly in the uh, printmaking mm-hmm. classes. Excellent. And so what role did art play in your life growing up? Like when did you first sort of get exposed to it and start to feel yourself drawn to it? Like it might be something you want to build a life around. Um, so that's, that's an interesting question. My parents had art at home and... Um, if we were traveling, then maybe maybe we'd go to an art museum. Um, the the sort of uh, let's call it cultural activity that my parents were more interested in me pursuing um, was um, music. So I was mm-hmm. studying I studied the clarinet when I was young for many years, and my parents would take me quite often to see the um, Tel Aviv Philharmonic um, Orchestra. So that sort of uh, and classical music grounding, but that never really took off for me. It's not, I don't think it's really what I was passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do remember, I do remember instances, you know, there's this whole thing about what do you want to do when you grow up? So I do mm-hmm. remember, I remember instances in my early teenage years where I thought to myself, oh boy, I'd really like to be an artist, but, but I don't know how to make art, you know, because <laughs> Because I couldn't, or quote unquote, couldn't draw. Yeah. I, I couldn't paint. Again, quote unquote, couldn't mm-hmm. paint, and I couldn't sculpt. And to my, to my mind, that's what art was. Right. Um. So that sort of that notion of being an artist sort of fell to the wayside, um, at that time, and um, because I had friends that could paint, you know, realistic paintings and could draw drawings that looked like what they were supposed to look like, and I sort of felt that. I don't I I don't have the talent to be an artist because I don't do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um needless to say, you know, looking back, 
and that's not I don't think that's the way to look at at how to become an artist and and maybe um if I had been exposed to people that were practicing artists at the time or if there was someone in my family that was a practicing artist then there could have been maybe some guidance to sort of help achieve that the direct the, how to how to go on that path of becoming um an artist mm. so it, saying that my uncle is a an amateur sculptor and he did try giving me a few tools and some advice but it never sort of took off so art wasn't really in my mind when i was a teenager or um, when i was growing up it wasn't sort of what i was interested in doing or planning to do in a way mm-hmm. i was very interested in photography but i was interested in photography in the sense of imagine national geographic magazine yeah. and these sort of you know technically perfect landscapes and beautiful pictures of animals and it didn't again in my mind it didn't occupy that same territory as art mm-hmm. um which i still don't know if it does or doesn't <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that'll be the next that, phd yeah yeah <laughs> it, well the, the interest the, the interest in photography did um lead me directly to where I am today. So um, I guess you can draw lines that far back. Um, but not I didn't I didn't see it as an art practice at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just am hearing your story and thinking about how me growing up in teenage years wanting to be an artist myself, wanting to be an artsy kid, having no particular gifts um in actual any sort of reproduction sort of images you know again whether uh drawing or sculpting or painting or sketching uh and so being like well I could just be a photographer because you can be an artist you don't have to draw (laughs) you know (laughs) so I don't know if a lot of a lot of kids do that but yeah and so then you know what kind of was that line between I guess photography and where you are now, and and where does where does printmaking fall into this? Well, when I came to um, Australia, um, I came here primarily um, on a surfing trip, and uh, ended up. Uh, it's now twenty years later, and I'm still here on my surf trip. So uh-huh. I think it was a, I think it was a pretty good trip. As far Endless as I'm summer, concerned. yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, something something like that, yeah. But at, at one point after. After a year or a year and a half of being here, I wanted to um, study something, and I was throwing up between studying, going and doing an art degree and studying photography at an art school, um, or getting a vocation, which I was working as a cook at the time, and so I was thinking of getting a chef's uh, qualification. And what I decided in the end to do was I I got my qualification as a to be a certified chef, um, and that gave me the skills and the opportunity to work in kitchens, after which I enrolled at art school and started training as an artist, all the time still working in the kitchens to mm. um, to make a living. Now, you asked how the photography thing led to printmaking, so I went to art school thinking I'm going to major in photography or photomedia. And after the first semester in photography, I realized that it was completely uh, separated from what my vision or expectations of mm. photography are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were teaching sort of 
a, a conceptually underpinned photographic practice. And I was interested in learning how to take beautiful photos. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was told by the teacher, basically, that I have to go to a technical college to study that. <laughs> um, so I, um, I took a, a general education class in printmaking, which was a screen printing class. And that sort of opened my eyes to this, to this uh, media or, or practice way or way of practicing that had completely been, um, it, it had never been something that I had considered. It was never something, it was not in my mind. I didn't know anything about printmaking. I didn't know what printmaking was. I didn't know who made prints or anything mm-hmm. like that. But this screen printing general elective that I took um, demonstrated for me a way to use my photographic skills or practice um, in a way that I found interesting because of the material language or the skills and techniques and process that are associated with the with the field of printmaking. So I switched my major over to printmaking and I was very lucky to have a fantastic um, teacher. I had multiple fantastic teachers, but the head of printmaking at the College of Fine Arts at the time was Michael Kempson, who I know you know well. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michael's a fantastic uh, artist, um, but he's also a fantastic and passionate educator. And so I had the I had the great opportunity to be mentored by him and to absorb so much um, printmaking and art knowledge. And that sort of led to my being and passionate about the media and and primarily practicing in that media. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible how much having the right mentor can really open up parts of the art world to us that we wouldn't have even considered otherwise. You know, just seeing another person's passion and that that person knows how to connect with you, it makes a huge difference and can really form the path of people's lives. Yeah. So having known your practice for a a few years now, I feel like you're a printmaker who isn't necessarily satisfied interacting with the medium in a way that is just sort of given to you. You know, you want to be a little bit of trouble with it and kind of explore um, different ways of using it, different ways of interacting with it, different ways of, of dealing with expectations. Was that early on in your practice did, that you started to kind of say, like, okay, like I'm being told this is sort of the standard way of producing an image, but I want to do more? Like, how did that kind of vein of using printmaking in outside the traditional boxes begin for you? I think it started um, at the end of my undergraduate studies. And um, so how the how an art degree is structured here in Australia is that you have a three-year degree and then you can undertake an additional fourth year, which is your honors year, which is already a um, self-directed research project to a certain extent. And for the first three years of, um, of my undergraduate studies, I was making traditional, fairly traditional um, screen prints, etchings, on paper, sort of what you expect a print to look like, a two-dimensional artwork framed on the wall. Um, And then during my honors project, I started actually 
uh, working onto um, different materials, working onto stainless steel, um, using sort of resin finishes to coat the work and achieve these sort of very high gloss uh, finishes to the work. And at the time, you know, I was thinking it was being experimental, but looking back, you realize that all these sort of processes are very, very traditional, but associated with with the commercial craft uh-huh. of of printing. So sign makers print on 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 steel all the time and resin coated, and you know they're they're doing all these sort of cutout shapes and 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 making these sort of prints on a day to day basis that I consider to be outside of the box. Right, you're being so avant-garde, yeah. <laughs> and, but in a way, in a way, they are outside of the box, in a way, because they become prints that don't look like prints yep. anymore. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of, there's this notion of the print, the, the printerly print, you know, the print that looks like a print and, and fulfills the viewer's expectation of what a print is supposed to be. And, and so with these pieces that I was making at that time on, on metals or on glass, I was working on glass and creating these sort of multi-layered um, objects. And then those prints were starting to appear to the viewer as something other than a print. Mm. And that, um, we can talk about it yeah. later on, but that's sort of where, um, where my practice is very much anchored right now yeah definitely um i have that i've got yeah i'm excited to kind of get there but i don't want to skip over throwdown press um because this was something where i think you saw a lot of these experimentations happen and so i don't know if maybe you could speak to sort of throwdown press and the idea behind it and then maybe give us a couple examples of some of that print that doesn't look like a print that came out of those collaborations sure throwdown press is a an initiative that i um uh, founded with a good friend who's also a friend of yours jason foo mm-hmm. um in 2012 and we jason and myself were working with michael kempson in cicada press which is michael's um publishing outfit and we were um editioning prints we were working as a, as editioning printmakers or helping to um, process the plates for the artists and just interact with the artists um, as general studio hands. But what we saw from that is that there's this whole possibility of collaboration between a master printer and an artist that has the potential to create innovations, let's say. I don't mm. know if they're innovations in the field, but just create innovations in the way you think about the medium. And so Jason and myself, what we wanted to do was we wanted to start the same sort of um, custom printing model as Takata Press, but geared towards inviting um, emerging artists and high-level art students to come and make some prints with us where they had no background in printmaking. So the idea was to get artists that were painters or ceramicists or performance artists to come and work with us for a period of time, let's say three months, and have them develop a body of work with our technical expertise 
and their their practice. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to see how how these artists who were basically thrown into the deep end, so to speak, how they would approach the medium without being encumbered by the traditions and conventions of printmaking and how they would approach the medium not having to um, refine any skill any skills. So Jason and I brought the printmaking skills to the table and we would go through, we would have like long conversations with the artists about what they want to do. And what, once we know what they want to do, what is possible, what isn't possible, or the most exciting option is what isn't possible, but let's think about how to actually get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ended up working at that time with the first group of, I think, four artists that um, produced a, a an exhibition's worth of uh, fairly traditional prints, but ones that really fit into their practice in what I thought was an interesting way. Mm-hmm. So um, we did that. And then since then, we've been working basically on an invitation basis. Not, I'm not too, I'm not too, um, like Throwdown Press doesn't occupy a lot of my time and energy. Yeah. I, I, act, I activate it occasionally to do a project or to work with someone specific or to apply for certain grants. And um, so I have this sort of snooze mode for it where I just, <laughs> I put it to, I, could, I might put it to sleep for a year and then say, oh, I want to do this and I'll yeah. talk to someone. Yeah, like and... a superpower you can call on when needed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many superpowers exist in the printmaking world. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so since then I've done some really, really interesting projects with a bunch of uh, a bunch of artists and some of them, um, I really like this uh, project that I did with an artist called Anna Christensen, where I helped her make these really large scale um, screen printed paintings, um, which you can look up on her website. I think Anna Christensen and um, the, the series, I think the series was called Render, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I thought that the outcomes of that were really great. There was another artist that I worked with that wanted to print onto um, kangaroo hides. Mm. So we did that. Um, and basically, uh, I get calls from artists that want to do um, screen printing projects that are um, either low edition or no edition screen printing projects that you won't find a commercial printer that's prepared to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I end up with artists coming to me who want to um, basically use screen printing in a way that's a little bit experimental, and I get to work with them and and sort of work out the the quirks of their projects, and we all have a great time doing yeah. it. Most most recently, I actually got a grant to expand and um, throw down press into uh, book and zine publishing. Nice. And so I published a great little book. I, I published three books initially: one for myself, one for um, an artist, uh, Lisa Wolf who's a local Sydney-based artist. But then the one I wanted to mention was someone you had on your show before, which is Tony Curran, a good friend oh, of mine. Tony. And uh, we published a book together, his book. It's called Signature. Fantastic book. I love it. Um, but um, me and Tony, we've worked quite a bit. I think he mentioned Throwdown Press when he mm-hmm. was doing, when he was talking to you as well. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, we're... we're... All, this is such like a print friends chat. I feel like because it's like it's Tony and Michael and Jason and Ben and like it's just, um, it's just so nice. But yeah, so if that's sort of um, 
I feel like that's a good segue to kind of bring us from the past, you know, into the into the present Ben Rack moment. So yeah, so you're you're working on the PhD. It sounds like you're kind of right in the heart of it. Can you talk to us about what you're working on? And I think particularly as it relates to what you were saying before about, you know, what printing printmaking is and how do we define it in a print that doesn't look like a print and all of that kind of stuff. You could give us your I'm doing the PhD story. Sounds sounds good to me. I'll give you the long version and you can feel free to edit it down if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the reason it's a long version is because what I've realized when I started um, doing my PhD is that my practice over the past 15 years, um, if you look at it, it seems aesthetically very diverse. Mm-hmm. And I go from one... Um, from one aesthetic to another aesthetic, from creating a series that looks like this to a series that looks like that to a series that looks like that. Um, But what I've come to realize, having started doing the research for my PhD, is that there is a very consistent um, strand running through the practice over this um, decade and a half. And it's really, it was very exciting for me to realize that everything I've ever made makes sense within mm. this one paradigm, whether I knew it at the time or not, because obviously I didn't know it at the time that that there's this sort of overarching um, theme to it. But now I look back and it all just slots perfectly into this one sort of area that I'm looking at right now. And I'm and it just makes me um it makes me very happy to see that there's that sort of level of consistency in the in the in the practice and in the yeah, interrogation. Yeah. And um, so going back way, way back when I migrated um, to Australia, then I started, I started, like I said, I migrated to Australia and I started art school. And how I saw it at the time was the work was about the relationship between the one and the many, the single and the multiple, um, which, again, looking back, the print is perfect for examining it because it has that sort of um, relationship between being at once unique and and um, part of a whole. Um, so that sort of at the time I thought that 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 interest was coming from me being an immigrant and sort of struggling with um, usual immigrant issues of like mm-hmm. developing a new social network and um, making new friends and having to accommodate this feeling of not belonging or this feeling of um, isolation within a within a, a Sydney, a global metropolis, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as I progressed over the years with my practice, it started becoming more and more about how people perform themselves. So mm-hmm. about performed identities, and I was looking at it mostly through the context of a consumer culture. So this idea that we are all performing ourselves based on um, media narratives and and sort of advertising mm. gimmickry that we're being fed from a young age is that kind of like a like a like you are what you buy kind of a thing that like I, do i buy like stevia flavored organic soda or do i buy diet coke and like what does that say about me like that kind of a thing very much so. Very. Yeah. That's very much part of it. This sort of um, idea that we fulfill our image of ourselves by buying certain goods or by 
um, affiliating ourselves with certain brands and, um, you know, the car we buy, the right. clothes we wear, the style of clothes we wear. And so those all fall into this broader idea of the performed self that, in essence, all, all of our identities are a performance. And mm-hmm. um, so I was working I was working around that idea for for quite a long time for probably eight or ten years and and mostly using the content of the artwork so the imagery that I was working with to um to examine to examine that idea of performed self and consumerism so for many years I was working with patterns that were derived from barcodes and Mm -hmm. I I would take the barcode pattern and then I would break it apart into image components and, and set the barcodes into different colors and print them, screen print them um, in the different colors to sort of create composite images that were that were derived from these barcode patterns. Um, I was doing that for a while, and then I decided to drop the the barcode pattern and just focus on the on the imagery that's in the images. And the more I was working with with this content that was about performed selves. I realized that actually the medium of the print is situated in a in a place that's really good to metaphorically examine the same sort of idea and that was the hook for my for my PhD project mm. basically what I sort of came across at the beginning of my PhD is that um, in the performed self, there is this idea of impression management, which mm. is a a term coined by a sociologist called Irving Goffman in his book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And he calls these performances that we enact in every social situation, he calls that impression management because we're trying to manage the impression that we're leaving on other people. And it all clicked for me when I realized that printmaking is essentially impression management as well and so what I'm now really interested in looking at is how can the material language of the print so the signifiers of how the work was made rather than the content of the work how can those signifiers of the material language or the syntax of the artwork and speak metaphorically to these sort of ideas of and impression management, performed selves, and um, authentic or inauthentic performances. Mm. I hope I hope you're following. With I de- me so no, I, I'm here. I'm here with you. I'm here with you. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, when you say though that sort of print is is kind of performing, what do you sort of mean by that? I guess. So. If you if you think about let's say you go to the doctor the doctor when he comes to treat you he's performing doctor to you right because that's what's because that's what's going to make you trust him as a doctor right like if you he, know if he came if he in shows up as, as a, a yeah as a as a clown then you'd be like oh you know what I'm not sure about this yeah. doctor yeah or a and, surfer or a yeah a, like yeah interesting uh-huh. yeah. yeah so so everybody is performing and. In, in a sense, performing themselves to other people. And those performances change. We're not a fixed performance. And so 
what I was saying before about a print that looks like a print is essentially a print that is performing print. Yeah. What do we expect of a print that's performing print? Usually mm-hmm. we expect it to be on paper. We expect uh, very often, with the, with the exception of, uh, well, not the exception, but usually we think of the print as monochrome. Mm-hmm. And we think about the image consisting of um, hatching or cross-hatching, or in the case of um, photographic images, we think of them consisting of halftones. Yeah. So these are all... Um, signifiers in the way the print performs print. You know, one of the things that I'm sort of infected with from this job is that if there's a print in a film, even if it's in the background, I always hit Tim and go, print, you know, because it's like, because there are things that a print looks like that makes it read to you, this is a print. It's framed, it's under glass, it's, as you said, like black and white. It has these different markers that even if it's passing in the background in old film, I can have an excuse to, you know, give Tim a smack and say print, like, cause there it is. Yeah. Absolutely. So I was, uh, I was at a flea market today and I'm walking and I see an image in a frame and from, from, you know, 10 feet away, I can, mm-hmm. I say to myself, Oh, that's a print because the, the lines are fuzzy. I can tell straight away that it's a dry point, you know? Right. Yeah. And so, all these signifiers are what I call the material language of the work or the syntax of how the work was made. Um, and they are instrumental in, in, in the artwork performing to the viewer a certain media, for example. So mm. when the print performs print, it, lo- it looks like a print and the viewer has certain expectations of that. Um, and those expectations also affect how how the artwork is perceived within the contemporary art world hierarchy, for Uh example. It's going to be cheaper. (laughs) It's going to be cheaper or it's not as important or lots of uh, hierarchical I wonder what the artist's real medium of choice is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, all all, all these sort of uh, um, questions come up. And so what, what I'm looking at now in my practice is what are... What are the ways that the material language of the print can be manipulated in order for the resulting artwork to pass for something else or mm. appear appear to the viewer as a painting or video work or or just not a print? Mm-hmm. And that that also goes back to that sort of what I was telling you about the prints on metal that I was doing. They even though they were screen printed and they were made, they were prints, they could also pass as not prints. Right. Um, Andy Warhol, perfect example of that sort of, um, that sort of situation. Yeah. You know, some, some might say um, Andy Warhol's work is categorized as painting mostly mm-hmm. because it's on canvas I, I would actually say that there are other nuances in the work that subconsciously get the viewer to categorize it as not print. Mm, is like scale one of them or? Um, I think, I think scale is one of them. And what I'm, what I'm seeing now more and more is that uncontrolled impression management uh. is one of those key factors that, um, 
allows the viewer to suspend their belief of the print or to um, accept the work as a not print because the expectation of a print is control. And ah, control, precision, the ability exactly. to reproduce a perfect edition. Exactly. Oh, that's so interesting. So that through through Warhol's just rejection of the need to get his silkscreen lines perfect, that sort so, of subconsciously lets the viewer be like, oh, well, this isn't a print. He's just using screen print to make a painting. Yes. So his... his uh, misregistrations, his screens clogging up, his glitches, his the places where the canvas sort of folds over itself and it doesn't sort of print in, in the mm-hmm. fold. All these are, to my opinion, you know, Im- imperfect uh, impression management as far as the print process goes, which allows the viewer to consider the work as a, as a painting in this case. Mm. No, that's, that's a really lovely, I think, concrete example of what you're talking about, which I really appreciate because I feel like sometimes in art theory, you can sort of talk someone down a rabbit hole and then you get to a point where you're like, okay, but does this even happen in real life? Like what's happening, you know? But it's it's so nice to actually hear that like, yeah, so here's, you know, one of the top five artists that people have heard of um, actually engaging in what and what you're you're talking about. So then, how is this sort of showing up in your own exploration in your personal practice? Then, um, so what I've been doing recently is because I work with screen prints a lot with, mm-hmm. or with with the screen printing technique. Um, I've been trying this technique, what I call the unhinged screen print. So. I found that by unhinging the screen from the traditional hinges or brackets that are used to control the movement of the screen, by by unhinging the screen and holding it in my hand, it it unhinges the identity of the artwork in the end and allows for the work to pass as a painting. So I'm mm. taking the screen in my hand and I'm using one screen almost like a paintbrush or a stamp, and I'm using the squeegee to push, push the paint through the stencil, and, but I'm hand-holding it and I'm, I'm moving it across a large uh, canvas and intuitively building up an image in, in a way that, materially speaking, speaks more to the act of painting than printmaking because I am letting go of that sort of element of control that is required for a print to be... Uh, perfect or reproducible or um, all these sort of things that you were mentioning before, you know, the, the cleansliness of the print and the reproducibility and the, 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 the printer's sort of perfection of technique. So by unhinging the screen and holding it in my hand, um, I found that there start appearing all these glitches in the artwork mm-hmm. that uh, are starting to and allow the viewer to consider the work outside of the realm of print. Mm. And that's sort of where I was starting with that, with this unhinging process. Um, And then with that process, at first I was creating um, abstract images because I was more interested in seeing how this material language um, can affect the viewer rather than the content affecting the viewer. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so from that, I started progressing into more um, figurative components and, and incorporating, for example, uh, photographic components of eyes and starting to create images of what I call masks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, so the mask content in the work um, becomes representative of this idea of a performed identity, which is thought of as wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because I, I feel like as, as you're speaking, of course, we're talking about prints versus painting and perceived value. But of course, we talk about identity and passing among humans in those exact terms, you know, whether it's sort of race, gender, class, all of that, and this idea of sort of performing in in order to, in a way, you know, make your own perceived value by society, maybe more so than you than than what identities you were born to in its own way. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's where the sort of conceptual richness of my interrogation is happening because mm-hmm. um the this sort of idea of impression management in printmaking is metaphorically can be used metaphorically to examine impression management in humans, which is very often used to also manage um, stigma yeah. and stereotype and marginalization. And this, this idea of passing that, that, you, that you spoke of, this sort of um, idea of a person of color who can pass for, for white, let's say, um, might avoid marginalization. And the um, benefits and pitfalls of that um, situation, you know, like there are positive things that can come out from avoiding, like avoiding marginalization is positive, but then there's this idea of, well, if I'm passing for something that I'm not, you know, how true am I being mm-hmm. to myself? And there's a shame associated with that. And there's all these sort of issues that are, I'm finding are one-to-one copies of what happens in print and printmaking. Mm-hmm. You, you, you'll find also in, in the printmaking world, printmakers that feel that the print is marginalized and they need to pass for something else. You know, they mm-hmm. need to pass for painters in order to be taken seriously. But then how do you feel about the fact that you love printmaking and you need to sort of deny that in order to avoid the marginalization of the media? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is something that I've heard artists speak to just really directly in those terms about how, you know, I love printmaking, but in order, f- my gallery wants me to make paintings because, you know, they say it takes them just as long to sell you know, a $6,000 print is a $60,000 painting or something like that, or, you know, $60 and 600 or six and 60, you know, kind of depending on, on what stratosphere of the, of the art world one is in, but it's, um, you know, and so they, they feel these sort of societal and commercial and logistical and practical pressures to move their practice in a direction that gets, or at least has the impression of, of uh, you know, perhaps having more reward in, in terms of a, even a career. So, yeah, that's really, really fascinating that you're finding a way to explore that through the practice that you're working with right now. And, and I love it, too, in the way that it seems, I don't know, almost a bit like calling out an elephant in the room, you know, is, is sort of saying, I think that printmakers, we... Uh, you know, people in the print world don't necessarily 
want to always admit that there is stigma against the medium um, and that it does affect, you know, in real, sometimes very real world ways, the potential careers and livelihoods and exposure that artists get. Yes. Um, yeah, look, uh, this sort of, I mean, which print, which printmaker has not thought about this notion of the marginalization of print and, mm. you know, is it a real thing? Is it not a real thing? <laughs> is, is it, do we want to talk about it? Do we want to be the, the, do we want to have the chip on the shoulder? Do we want to have mm-hmm. the, do we, do we want to be the sour grapes that always complains about, you know, oh, I'm not taken seriously because I'm making prints. <laughs> right. You know, you, you never know if it's because you're making prints or you're making bad art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's something that I certainly think about in this podcast. And it's really where the, the tagline comes from of the kind of the shun the non-believers is this idea of, you know, kind of rather than, you know, being that kind of sour grape, that whiner, that sort of like, oh, no one will ever understand lino cut, you know, <laughs> like just saying like, you, you know, we have our own value within our own society. And we don't need to look for that external validation uh, in terms of our practice. But it also would be, I think, unwise to just completely ignore the fact that it does exist, that people will some, can get feedback from a gallery when they make a submission of their beautiful, stunning, technically stellar lithographs. Oh, we we only show real art or we only show originals, you know, and that happens to people and we shouldn't ignore the fact that that happens. Yeah. I've got, I've gotten the real art line from a gallerist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I've also, I actually, I remember this cause I was a second year student and it was the first exhibition I ever had to work in, in a commercial gallery. Mm. And it was this print that I made of, it was like, a city skyline with a figure and it was all constructed out of like, uh, um, pages from the phone book. If anybody remembers, well, printmakers remember what a phone book yeah, is. We they s- use it. still got to use them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 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 the gallery sold the work and um, which was great. And then said to me like, Oh, you know that you should actually really be making paintings of these. And I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm a second year student learning how to make prints. And you're telling me that I need to make paintings yeah. and what are, what do I make of this? And I don't paint, quote unquote. That's my, that was always my thing. I don't paint. <laughs> right. But um, it's, look, that's just, that's part of the field. What are you going to do? Yeah. And you were, you were saying about, you know, the need for external validation. Um, I still haven't overcome that need. So <laughs> I, I, I tell myself it's human nature, but, you know, everybody, doesn't everybody want, you know, external validation? Oh, you know, it it never hurts, you know? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So you've recently had an exhibition at the Wagga Wagga Art Gallery that I believe just closed in January, so really just a few months ago now. Um, And it was called The Masks I Wear to Pass. And looking back at your work, it seems like identity has been a theme of exploration, you know, from like double coding, which is the series from 2013 and through now. And I'm wondering what kind of draws you to that subject. You spoke a little bit about kind of your immigrant experiences. Do you think that's sort of like the heart of it as someone who's grown up on different parts of the world? And, you know, I can speak to as someone who's lived in, 
you know, three different countries at this point, how you think a lot about your identity when you show up somewhere new because you don't have any of the markers that you usually use to reflect back to yourself about who you are. Like friends are gone, restaurants are gone, that kind of thing. But I'm just sort of curious for you, maybe kind of why it's a theme for you and and what maybe you've kind of discovered through using your art practice as a way to explore it. Yes, I think uh, the immigrant experience is very, um, it's a it's really a way for people to have a new understanding of their identity. And I think that's primarily because if you imagine, so you're, you moved from the United States to Australia and to Thailand. So if you imagine you're living in the United States, you're surrounded by Americans. And while Americans are obviously not a homogenous identity, and there is this idea of American identity. Mm-hmm. And so your, your American identity doesn't stick out, you know, when you're, when you're surrounded by Americans and, and I'm pretty sure that your American identity sticks out when you're surrounded by Thai people. A little bit, yeah. And it can. It can. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I like I said, I was born in the United States, and um, as you can probably hear, I have an American accent when I speak in English. And um, and I grew up in Israel, and and then I moved to Australia, and I'm Jewish, so that's also part of it, and. My Jewishness, for example, when I was in Israel, I was surrounded by Jewish people, and so my Jewish my Jewishness was a non-event was was not something that I ever thought about. Mm-hmm. And but once I moved to Australia, and um, and you're not surrounded by people that are like you in that sense, and um, you start thinking more and more about what what that means and what are the implications of being of having that identity like implications to myself not to to other people and mm. um, and beyond that like you were talking about my wagga wagga exhibition the masks i wear to pass and um, jewishness is is an otherness it's what's called an invisible otherness mm-hmm. so it's an otherness that can be concealed i can pass as not jewish that's not not a problem for me because i don't uh, i don't dress up like an orthodox jew and mm-hmm. um if I was standing next to you or talking to you, you'd have no idea that I was Jewish and you, you know, might make uh, inappropriate comments or might make some jokes about Jewish people and stuff like that that would make, and you wouldn't think twice about it. So that sort of um, invisible otherness was very interesting for me um, when I was approaching my, this, this examination of the notion of passing, because I can choose whether I pass or I don't pass. Mm-hmm. as Jewish. Yeah. And um, on the same level, not not looking at, at Judaism, but looking at my personal immigrant status, like I mentioned, I have an American accent. And so in Australia, the first thing everybody asks me is like, oh, where in the where in the United States are you from? And I have at that point, I have the opportunity to tell them, oh, no, actually, I'm not from the United States. I'm from Israel. Or I, I can tell them, um, whatever from California. Right. And, and that I make those decisions based on what sort of future I think I have with these people. If it's somebody that I'm meeting for five seconds and I'm not going to bother wasting my energy telling them about my, my life history. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to, just going to brush them off and say that I'm from California. And, and then they inevitably make some, say something about the United States. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And, and we, we, we walk, we go our different ways. And, and so these are all parts of the of the performed self, you know, like 
do I want to perform American to somebody? Do I want to perform Israeli to somebody? I've been in Australia for um, 20 years. I'm an Australian national now. I can, you know, I can, I can truly say I am Australian. Maybe I'm yeah. not born Australian, but I am Australian. And so and this idea of passing and performed selves and who we want to pass for, in some cases we can control it and in some cases we can't. I'm thinking about kind of, yeah, your experience and and particularly having been an Australian immigrant myself and, uh, you know, the nature of Australia as it is uh, a country um, largely populated by immigrants, um, you know, like the United States, like Canada, it has this colonial history. Um, and so, and it's a city like Sydney, that's extremely multicultural, as as you mentioned before, that sort of walking around, and for me, walking around as a white blonde lady, it would only be, you know, sort of opening my mouth and speaking in an American accent that someone might be like, oh, you're not from here, to the extent that white Australians can be, quote unquote, from Australia. And that way that it you know that it changes the way people perceive you. And as soon as, generally speaking, the more information people gain about people, they start to kind of put them in boxes and ways of understanding them of like, oh, you know, um, so Miranda's not Australian, she's American. And, you know, you kind of see just the way it's just being formed. And, and anyway, it's just a really interesting idea, this idea of an invisible identity and, you know, what you kind of choose to show and all of these calculations that are going on as we interact with other humans kind of behind the scenes that can be based on, you know, convenience. Like you said, like, I just don't really feel like getting into my life story. I'm from California, um, you know, or safety for, for some people, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't really think that I'd be safe letting this person know that I'm queer, even though they sort of haven't clocked by looking at me or speaking to me that I am, um, or, you know, kind of maybe even perceived social climbing that if I can, you know, uh, let them know that I'm from a, a social class like them or like, oh, yes, you know, I. I had a summer abroad in Italy too. Like now we're bonded. Like don't you want to don't don't you feel better about me now? I was able to afford to do that. That kind of thing. It's something that I think people can do so much consciously, subconsciously, nefariously, innocently, you know, it's just such a deep vein to mine. Yeah, well those those are all real wor- real world um examples of the of this performed self that I'm talking of and um you know the framework that I'm using which is Irving Goffman's presentation of self argues that there is no authentic self there's mm. there's we're always wearing a mask and so the the most authentic quote unquote authentic self that you can wear is the what he calls the sincere mask mm. which is the most aligned with what you be, truly believe yourself to be Hmm. Um, but, but, you know, the sincere mask is, uh, we put it on and take it off all the time and, uh, we present ourselves, we're, we're, we're always undergoing impression management as far as, um, trying to control how other people perceive us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the works, the works that I had at, at the Wagga Wagga exhibition, um, were also, as far as the material process goes, and um, trying to have that sort of uh, fluidity or and ambiguity that 
I that I experience through my mm. my Jewish my Jewishness, which is I have the capacity to turn it on and turn it off. And so in the works there, I try to trigger signifiers or indices, both of printmaking and of painting, that it will depend on how far or how close you are to the work mm. and or it, it'll depend on how much um, how much knowledge you have about how prints are made. Right. Um, and so I make these works that are meant to trigger um, different interpretations that then become dependent on the viewer. So the performance is out there. And then the viewer, like you said earlier, uh, people are used to boxing you in or stereotyping you in order to better understand who you are. So they come, these people come to a situation with, with a lifetime of um, uh, preconceived notions and experiences. And mm -hmm. so the preconceived notions and the experiences that the viewers bring to my artworks will, um, in the end, affect the way in which they perceive or choose to acknowledge those artworks. Yeah, yeah. Really, really interesting stuff. Has the fact that the word mask and what it means to us dramatically changed in the last 18 months because of the COVID pandemic. Has that affected at all, you think, the way your work is perceived or even the way you see it? I know it's a totally different kind of mask, but there's no doubt that that word, as it appears in our lexicon in English globally, has suddenly really taken on a different meaning or a different maybe initial meaning when people first hear it. Um, so... Surprisingly, yes, but ah. in a very in a in a very tangential way. Mm. Um, it's at like if you would have asked me this uh, six months ago, then I would said a, I would have said a resounding no. But mm -hmm. there there is a little bit of connection, and my my connection to masks goes back to the material language of the print, and particularly the screen print, because the screen print is a masking process right it's a stencil it's a stencil yeah. process and a, a stencil is a mask and so what a mask is is it's a tool that allows us to control where and which information gets through so imagine you're wearing a mask on your face and it has eye holes and it has a mouth hole then your eyes and your mouth are coming through but the rest of the information on your face is blocked um, and the same thing happens on a screen where the mask is or where the stencil is, mm -hmm. is where it, that, that defines where the information or the image or the ink are going to go through from the matrix to the substrate. Um, and so my interest in masks is that sort of connection of terminology between the print or the screen print being a masking process and the performed identity being as well a masking uh, process. Uh -huh. And those connections. And so the more I interrogate this sort of idea, the more I'm finding that there are these sort of semantic or language connections between the two processes that are strengthening my metaphor more and more. Um, but saying that, I did realize that um, part of wearing a mask, for example, the COVID masks that we're wearing, or masks that we wear in the printmaking studio is to protect us. And, yeah. and, and in the performed self, like you were saying, uh, stigmatized people wear masks in order to protect them from what could be dangerous situations.
So there are those connections as well. But I don't really, I don't really want my idea of masks and my use of masks to sort of mix in with totally. the with the 2021 2022 or 2020 2021 2022 yeah um, hopefully to not 2023 2024 yeah <laughs> like yeah the 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 this these masks that we're using now mm-hmm. are they're not they're not really what i'm talking about Truly, but all masks and yeah. um, those masks do like i said they perform a function of protection which is identical to the to the performed self mask that a marginalized person that's mm-hmm. trying to pass um, would employ in order to protect themselves mm-hmm. from um, from being discovered or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, Ben, you've broken my brain. Um, I will no longer <laughs> be able to interact with anyone without thinking like, what am I showing? What am I concealing? Why am I trying to manipulate this? Like, I feel like it's going to be, uh, you know, but no, you, yeah. <laughs> man, manipulation is only one. It's like a, it's a really small part of that. Mm-hmm. It, it, you don't need to frame it within this sort of negative framework. And mm. um, it's just, it's just, it's just what we are. It's just how uh. we are. Yeah, yeah. It's not, you know, fair enough. There are people that attempt to be manipulative or like get con men, for example. Right. That's what they're doing. Yeah. That's exactly what they're doing. Um, but it's not, it doesn't need to be thought of um, like how we perform ourselves doesn't need to be thought of as how we manipulate other people. Mm. I really like that idea, actually. That's that's going to help me. <laughs> When I was, I walk away from the interview because it's, I, I think that wanting to connect with a person and find common ground uh, is a really human thing. And it is, you're right, it doesn't have to be manipulative and it doesn't have to be nefarious. It could just be, I'm trying to find out how you're like me and I'm like you because I have so many different identities um, and we're probably will find a way that they overlap and choosing to point you know to sort of reveal to unmask that part of yourself can just be from a place of wanting genuine connection wanting to have another human experience with someone who might be really different from you in other ways so yeah it doesn't have to be just you know this kind of sociopathic like you're gonna like me you know Mm. (laughs) yeah more more often than not you'll find that the sort of things that you're doing you're actually doing for the benefit of the other person to feel mm. comfortable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Like me uh, like me playing along with the person that wants to know where in the United States I'm from. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Please let listeners know where they can find you, where they can follow your work, where they can maybe see images of it and all that good stuff. Um, okay, I'm on Instagram under the moniker of Binya666. That's B-I-N-Y-A triple six. And I have a website that's occasionally updated (laughs) um, at benrak.com.au. So B-E-N-R-A-K dot com dot A-U. Well, yeah, that will be awesome. Um, And thank you so much, Ben, for catching up with me and telling me more about your work. Always a pleasure. It's my pleasure, Miranda. Thank you for having me. And I'm really hoping the 
Our international travel ban lifts soon, and maybe I'll find myself in Thailand. So please, that'd be please. really amazing to catch up with you and some other great friends we have there. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got lots of friends, lots of print friends here. So come on up. Cool. Thanks again, Miranda. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Paul Malowney. We'll talk about his familial print history, Japan, Hawaii, and recessions. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.